Let's me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, teach us what it means to be that one church, what it means to cleave to that one faith, what it means to subject ourselves to that one Lord. In his name we pray, amen. And I would ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, back to Ephesians chapter 4 which was page 1175 in the Church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4, Alex read for us verses 1 to 13. I'm going to be focusing, especially this morning, on verses 1 to 6. Alan, next Sunday morning, will pick up the remainder of that passage. Well now, we've reached the halfway stage in our exploration of this letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And as we pass from the first half into the second half of this great epistle, we immediately notice a change of scenery. There is a shift. There's a shift from principles to practice, from belief to behaviour from doctrine to duty, from exposition to exhortation, from credenda, things to believe, to agenda, things to do, from indicative to imperative, perhaps most simply, from what God has done to what we must do. And yet these two halves of Ephesians are inseparably connected. The first verse of chapter 4 makes this clear, I think. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, and of course the word then itself is a connecting word, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, Paul has been expounding in the first half of Ephesians the calling that God's people have received. Through the gospel, God has called Jewish believers and Gentile believers to form a single new humanity, the body of Christ, the church. And now, in the second half of the epistle, Paul will explain what it means to live a life worthy of that lofty calling. And the first thing on Paul's agenda when he considers what it means to live a life worthy of our calling, the first thing on the agenda is unity. Make every effort, he says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. More generally, in verses 1 to 6, Paul spells out God's part and our part in this vital matter of Christian unity. 
he tells us that God has drawn on his vast resources to create Christian unity and that we must apply our best efforts to maintain Christian unity. Let's look at each of these two things in turn. First, God has drawn on his vast resources to create Christian unity. Well, there are, of course, certain kinds of unity that we human beings can create. A football team, an army, a choir, a political party can all be united around a shared aim or purpose. But no human effort or skill or organisation can create the kind of unity of which Paul speaks here. Only God can take people, human beings, not only utterly diverse in age, gender, ethnicity, ability and so on, but also alienated from God and from one another in their fallenness. Only God can take such people and fashion them into one solid building, one coordinated body, one loving bride. To pick up three of Paul's famous metaphors of the Christian church. Only God can do that. That's why Paul calls Christian unity, in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. And then, in verses 4 to 6, the Apostle hammers this point home by listing no less than seven unities that relate to God that underpin our unity as God's people. Seven unities relating to God that underpin our unity as his people. Three of these unities refer to who God is. Do you see with me in verses 4 to 6? There is one spirit. Paul calls it the unity of the spirit because Christian unity is created by God, the Holy Spirit. It is he who has made us alive in Christ and it's he who indwells God's people. There is one Lord, our common allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ binds us together in unity. There is one God and Father of us all. God the Father has adopted us into his family, and we are thereby brothers and sisters to one another. Do you notice there the Trinitarian structure embedded here? Reversing what we might think is the usual order, we have one Spirit, one Son, one Father. And this, of course, is no accident. Paul is speaking now of Christian unity, and very soon he will speak of Christian diversity. And God himself is the epitome, the ultimate model of unity in diversity. Just as God is three in one, so God's people are many and yet one. 
Well, that's the first three of the seven unities that relate to God. The other four unities refer not so much to what God is, but to what God has done. First, God has constituted his people, it says here, as one body. And here, of course, we do have one of Paul's favorite metaphors or pictures of the church. The church as a body, a living body. And it, too, conveys very strongly the idea of unity in diversity. The human body consists of many different types of cells and tissues and organs and systems, but all together with a mutually shared life. The thing that unites the body is not the similarity of the different parts, but the the contribution of the different parts to their common life. God has constituted his people as one body. Secondly, God has called his people to one hope. Paul has been expounding the Christian hope in chapter 1. We look forward, he taught there, to a unified and reconciled cosmos, to a glorious inheritance, having already received a foretaste in the gift of the Spirit. That's something of the hope that is set before us. And the existence of a unified church now is an anticipation of the final unification of all things in Christ. God has called his people to one hope. Third, God has established his people in one faith. There is only one way of salvation, for it is by grace that we have been saved, Paul has already taught, through faith in Jesus Christ. Fourth, God has welcomed his people in one baptism. Baptism being the badge, the outward sign of our membership of the one people of God. Three things then relating to who God is, four things relating to what God has done. In seven different ways then, Paul emphasizes that Christian unity is rooted in who God is and what God has done. It follows then that Christian disunity must be a repudiation of the one God we claim to worship and a denial of the one gospel we say we believe in. Christian disunity is, in fact, a contradiction in terms. No wonder, then, that we find Paul urging his readers to make every effort to keep this unity in the bond of peace. And so we turn then to my second main point. If this Christian unity has been created by God, then we must apply our best efforts to maintain it. We Christians must apply our best efforts to maintain Christian Christian unity. I wonder if you find it puzzling that Paul can, on the one hand, assert that Christian unity is created by God, and yet, on the other hand, urge us to maintain it ourselves. Is that a contradiction? But, of course, when you think about it, it's not so puzzling. It's just the same with marriage, isn't it? 
God has so joined husband and wife together, they become one flesh. And yet every married couple realizes, or at least ought to realize, sooner or later, that they can't take their relationship for granted. They have to work at maintaining it. God creates it. We work at maintaining it. Now, in this matter of Christian unity and maintaining it, I have never yet met a Christian who didn't agree that unity is a good idea in principle. I've never heard anybody who's against Christian unity. The the communion of saints sounds a wonderfully heavenly idea, doesn't it? But how much effort are we putting into turning principle into practice in this matter of Christian unity? To dwell above with saints we love, that will will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So what is this bond of peace in which we are urged to keep the unity of the Spirit? Well, I think you know that Paul has just been describing the bond of peace in verse 2 when he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, and the word there literally means being long-tempered as opposed to being short-tempered. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. These, of course, are not popular traits in this world, and they never have been. But lest we are tempted to think of them as pathetically weak and unattractive, let's remind ourselves that what we see here in verse 2 is a perfect portrait of Jesus Christ himself. That's Jesus who, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, declared, I am gentle and humble of heart. That's Jesus of whom Paul can say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, when Paul can speak of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So we have a set of character traits that will contribute to us maintaining or keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what efforts are we prepared to make to put all of this into practice? Let me list just a few. First, let's be builders rather than wreckers. I saw them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a dusty town. With a yo-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman if these men were as skilled as the men he'd hire if he were to build. He laughed and said, Oh, no, indeed. Common labour is all I need. For these men can wreck in a day or two what builders had taken years to do. I asked myself as I went my way, what kind of role am I to play? Am I the builder who builds with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Or am I the wrecker 
who walks the town, content with the role of tearing down. To knock one another down is easy, and in the short term, quite fun, in a malicious kind of way. It takes real effort and determination to build one another up. Let's resolve to be, bicker, uh, to be builders and not wreckers. Secondly, let's make good use of our forgetteries. We like to train our memories, but sometimes it's a good idea to train up your forgettery. Clara Barton was the founder of the American Red Cross, and she was never known to hold a grudge against anyone. She was once reminded by a friend of a wrong done to her some years earlier. Don't you remember what harm that person did to you? asked the friend. No, replied Clara firmly. I distinctly remember forgetting that. You know, there are many minor irritations and disagreements that we can simply overlook. In this regard, may God grant to us the gift of a blind eye, a deaf ear, and an appalling memory. Let's make good use of our forgetteries. Thirdly, let's make every effort to include one another in. I think that one of my weaknesses is that I tend to wait for others to decide whether they want to include me in or include me out of things. I need to be more willing to take the initiative, even if a fellow Christian seems unfriendly towards me. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wits to win. We drew a circle that brought him in. Let's make every effort to include one another in. And then fourthly, let's get into the habit of speaking good rather than ill of one another. One of the most distressing and destructive habits that, that can occur in church life is when one Christian can find nothing good to say about another. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. How can one part of the body be so hateful and hurtful towards another? Two of the greatest leaders and evangelists of the Great Awakening in the 18th century were John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were friends and close associates in Christian ministry. There came a time when they had a well-publicized falling out over a point of doctrine, such that they then continued their ministry along separate paths. Later, someone once asked George Whitfield, Brother Whitfield, do you think that we shall see John Wesley in heaven? Well, Whitfield pondered the question for a moment and then gave his reply. No, I don't think we shall see Mr. Wesley in heaven. You see, he will be so close to the throne, and you and I will be so far away, 
that we shall hardly get a glimpse of him. I think that's speaking good rather than ill of someone who you've had a falling out with. When we speak to fellow Christians, there may be a place from time to time for rebuke, correction, and even confrontation. For truth's sake, Paul confronted Peter to his face. But when speaking about one another, we need to ask, is what I'm about to say true? Is it necessary? And is it loving? Christian unity, then, is not an optional extra. God has drawn on his vast resources to construct his people as one building, with Christ as the cornerstone, a building that rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. God has constituted his people as one body, with Christ as the head, each part contributing to the proper functioning of the whole. God has called his people to be one bride, with Christ as the bridegroom who loved her and gave gave himself for her. Can our response be anything less then than, Lord, by your grace, we will be that one solid building. We will be that one fully functioning body. We will be that one holy bride that you have called us to be. By God's grace, may it be so. Amen.